As we've gone through Colossians, can anybody give me your impression about what, and I've said this a couple of times, so yes, this is a little bit of a test. Uh, what, what was the purpose of Colossians? What, why did Paul write it? Can anybody remind me of that? Anybody remember what we've said? Marion, go ahead. Yep, exactly. He was, Paul was uh, confronting the false teaching that had gone on in the church at Colossae. Anybody remember what perhaps sort of the central theme of that false teaching was? Or what were they denying that Paul takes them to task on? Anybody remember that? The divinity of Christ. Man, you guys have learned some stuff. Uh, Lord, amen. All right, let's go. I'm, I'm all done here. My work is done. No, I, I'm just glad that you remembered some of this stuff. Uh, the divinity of Christ. As you think about that uh, in your life, somebody give me a reason for, a, if you can, a practical reason for why the divinity of Jesus is important for you in your life, or a theological reason. Why is that important? Why is that even significant? Why, why, do, we, why do we care if there were people teaching why would we care today if there were people teaching that Jesus wasn't God, that he wasn't divine? Why would that matter? Wayne, go ahead. I like what he did. E.B. Hill said, you know, why, why do you want to get saved? He said, because I don't want to go to hell. Why do you want to get saved? Because I don't want to go to hell. Amen. <laughs> Me too. What does the divinity of Jesus have to do with that? Fran, you were saying something. If he's like everyone else, there'd be no hope. Okay, but yeah, but how does him not being like everybody else provide hope? You're right, but I want us to be able to say it in a particular way. He's the only one that rose from the dead. He's, well, Lazarus did. I'm sorry, Nikki said he's the only one that rose from the dead. This is my older sister who I kind of, no, there's a particular answer. Marion, you've already gotten credit for one. John, you were going to say something I could see. Why is it significant that Jesus is divine? Yeah. If I died for you, what does that mean? Well, it might mean that I love you, but, but I'm not sinless. Jesus died for us. If he was just a, just a man and he died for us, while that is significant, it doesn't remove our sins. He had to be sinless. He had to be God. He had to be divine. It's in the death of God's son that we are redeemed. Amen. Hebrews tells us that in the death of Jesus, he was a better sacrifice than the one. He was a spotless lamb, but he wasn't just a lamb. He was the lamb of God. Remember what John called him when he was walking towards him? Behold the what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It, it is that divinity that gives him the ability to do that. If he's just a man, it's, it's wonderful that he died for you and me, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have, the, he, he doesn't have the ability in his death. His, his sacrifice isn't great enough for our sins to be forgiven. It took the death of the Son of God, okay? So if you reduce him to humanity only, then our sins aren't forgiven. Carol, what were you going to say? Yes, and that's, it, Carol is bringing up, a, and I said this many weeks ago, that the, the name of that 
sort of that false religion that and the heresy that they suggested was the Gnostics spelled with a G G N O S it's the it's the same train of thought it's that same false religious system that we get the word Gnosticism from that says okay we believe that perhaps Jesus was real and died but he wasn't God and that's still going on today and that's still part of some belief systems and that's really what we believe that Paul is addressing when he writes the letter to Colossa was was the teaching of the Gnostics those who believe that Jesus wasn't God okay um very good you guys have just done great a plus nine weeks great but we got another nine weeks to go you're not done yet all right um very good no that makes me happy that you've learned some things and that you remember some things and uh, I just wish that uh, that our credential pastor Randy would have gotten any of those answers right that would have just <laughs> really been good <laughs> John, thank you. you. You redeem the credential holders in the room tonight. My goodness, Randy. Only been a pastor for a hundred years. I know what you were doing. You were letting other people answer, giving them a chance. Yes, I do the same thing often. Have you guys, you guys have heard the, the and, and we're going to get to, and this won't take long tonight, Gloss, these last few verses, but you've heard the story of the guy that was like that. He was traveling with his chauffeur and the chauffeur was with him. And he, the chauffeur heard him. He was a, like a famous scientist. And, and the chauffeur traveled with him night after night. And finally, he'd heard the speech so many times that as they're traveling between one stop to the next, the chauffeur says, goodness gracious, I've heard this speech so many times, I can do this. And the scientist said, okay, fine. Why don't you, why don't we swap places? I'll wear your suit, you wear mine, and you go do the talk. And the guy did, word for word, and he did a great job. And at the end, somebody raised his hand and he asked some phenomenally complicated question. And the guy was pretty quick on his feet. He said, sir, that question is so simple. I'm going to let my driver answer it. <laughs> All right. So that's what you were doing when it ran. You were just giving other people a chance to shine. That was what? Oh, I didn't, I'd never heard that as a true story, but Okay. Nikki was there. She knows. She was. Yeah. <laughs> Feeling pretty good tonight, you know. If you don't eat long enough, your blood sugar gets to a place your brain just doesn't. Uh, I have eaten some stuff, in case you're wondering. I think I shared that Sunday, but, uh, but, but still restricting what I'm doing. And Pastor Dan and I went out this afternoon and spent some time together. And it, about halfway through it, I was like, okay, man, I am just... I need to sit down. I'm just, I'm just done. So God's good though, isn't he? God's good. Amen. Amen. Well, let's read verses uh, seven through 18 of Colossians chapter four. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Um, we did verses one through six last week. Let's, let's finish this up tonight. This is Paul's final greeting, but there are some pretty neat little nuggets in here in this farewell. Paul writes this. He says, uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. 
And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in, uh, in Laodicea and in the Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's begin in verse 7. He says, uh, uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Fellow servant here, uh, in, uh, I'm reading from the ESV, uh, you may have another version, it may say fellow bond servant, uh, even one, I think one version says fellow slave. Um, it's, it's an interesting phrase, <clears throat> fellow servant, fellow bond servant, fellow slave, all of which are accurate translations of what Paul is trying to say. I want you to consider what it means and what Paul is saying here. Because it, it comes in my mind in pretty sharp contrast to what a lot of people think it means to be a Christian today. Paul says, uh, Tychicus, he's going to tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow bondservant, fellow slave in the Lord. Now, uh, bondservant is probably a term that would make it easy to understand what Paul is saying. A bondservant is one who willfully placed themselves. This isn't forced slavery. This isn't what happened to the, to the people from Africa when they were brought against their will to the Americas. This is not that. This is something else. Uh, it, it carries with it a, a willful submission. And yet, a, an enslavement. All right, so let me put those two together. When Paul writes about being a bondservant, it is a willful, I choose to be enslaved to Christ. That's what Paul is writing about. It is a, it is a, it is a connection based upon his love and his sense of indebtedness to who Jesus is and his calling. Paul writes this letter, we'll talk about where in a moment, there's some really interesting pieces about who's with him, and I bet there's a piece here that I bet you didn't know, because it, I have to remind myself of it pretty regular, we'll see that later, but Paul writes this letter in chains, these aren't metaphorical chains, these aren't spiritual chains, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a prisoner for the sake of the gospel, he's, gonna, he's already said before, we're going to hear it again tonight, and he's not talking about just a sort of a a metaphor for he, he's in literal chains he is imprisoned 
for having preached the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. We we read that last week and we'll hear it again tonight. And he says that, so he he is enslaved. There's no indication that Tychicus is. But but he talks about this bond service, this this slavery to the Lord. Not, Not forced, but through desire. Now when you think, when you think about Christianity in America, um, I don't think this is what people are thinking about. Would, would you say amen to that? But there is this, this willful submission to who Christ is. I heard a, uh, it's a video, I've got the gentleman's name written down, I watched it several years ago. And it is, uh, it, it, went, it went through social media. I'm sure many of you saw it, but it's a Harvard uh, economics professor and, who is a devout Christian. And he tells the story of a Marxist Chinese student who had come to study for a, for a short time at Harvard. He'd come from communist China. And at the end of that student's time in his class, he had asked him, Remember, it's an economics class. He had asked him what your impression was of America. The student was getting ready. He was only here for a short time. He was getting ready to go back. And the young man said to him, he said, I had no idea how important religion is to the operation of your democracy. This is from a Marxist, communist, Chinese young man He said, I had no idea how important religion is to the operation of your democracy. And he said, what do you mean? He said, he said, I I have, have, while I'm here, I've seen how frequently churches appear in your country and how many people have that as the as the guiding principle in their participation in your democracy. And he said, the, the young man went on to say how he was so intrigued by how that religious center caused people to willingly do the right thing without anybody forcing them to. He said, and the, the professor goes on, it's a wonderful YouTube, I can get you the name, it's on YouTube, it's about a two minute deal. He said, he began to reflect on what was happening in our country with the removal of religion from people's lives. And he said it dawned on him that many of the things that are going on in our culture, he says, are because of the removal of that, of that foundational piece that causes people to willingly do the right thing when no one's making them do it. He said, and at the end of this, he said, because... Without something that constrains people and causes them to want to do the right thing, he says, he says, you cannot hire enough police. And isn't that that what we're seeing in our young generations today? That that the thing that, that used to cause us to just do the right thing isn't there. When Paul writes about being a bond servant, that's that thing to me. I'm bound to him. I'm not, I'm not bound to you. I, I am bound to you, but 
the thing that constrains me is not, it's not the church. It's not the assemblies of God. I, I will one day not be a pastor. I will one day probably not be, you know, a, a, an active credential minister. You, you, when you leave here, you know, you, you're at home. What the thing that Paul is writing about is that we are bond servants to Christ Jesus. That's the thing that he's talking. Tychicus will tell you about my, he's a beloved brother and he is a faithful minister and a fellow bond servant in the Lord. And that's the deal, church. Amen. That's not, that's not credentials. That's not, and they, they didn't issue credentials back then. This is not some title. He's saying, this guy is tied to Jesus with me. Amen. And Fran, I want you to know that I expect you to be tied to Jesus with me. I know and no buts. Oh, <laughs> Francis, but I have to stay here until she dies. How long you got? <laughs> Marion, I expect you to be tied to Jesus with me. Pat, come on, that's, that's who we are. Amen. Leslie, but never mind. Randy, I expect you to be tied. <laughs> right. Come on, we are bound together in service to him. Amen? That's what Paul's writing. Verse 8, he says, this is really interesting to me when you think about the context. You can read through it, and if you don't dig in a little bit, you don't see this. He said, I have sent him, Tychicus, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. He's going to tell you about all my activities. That's what Tychicus is coming. Most people believe that Tychicus is the guy that carried the letter. He's brought the letter that we're reading to them. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and it's this next phrase, and that he may encourage your hearts. That him telling you how we are will encourage you. Now, how is Paul? Say it, Carol. He's in prison. But there's something about the way Paul is doing it and what it's for. And what its purpose is that he says will encourage the people at Colossa. Now, I think this is a particularly good truth for us right now in this world that we're living in. Paul is in, pray, in prison. He's in chains. He's in Rome, we believe. You're going to hear about Luke being with him in a moment. And we, we know that they were there together. There's nowhere in the letter that Paul, there's nowhere in this letter to the Colossians that he tells us where he is when he writes it. We believe he wrote it from Rome, okay? Because Luke is with him. You're going to hear that in a moment. But he's in prison. And he says, listen, Tychicus is going to come to you, and he's going to tell you about all of, watch this, about all of our activities, all of my activities. How you doing? I mean, no, it's not, he's not, he's not in prison like that. He's not. When he and Silas were chained, that, that was like, but he, we believe, is in house arrest, he, he, he moves around, but he's not free to travel a country, all right? But listen, he, he's, not, he's not in the molly grubs. Y'all know that term? That's an old word, man. That's a, he's not depressed. He's not lamenting. He, he is, watch this. Why would Paul's circumstances encourage their heart? Do you remember what he said in chapter 1, verse 24? Go back there for a minute. Go back to chapter 1. Colossians 1 and listen to what he says. 
He says, now I rejoice, this is chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul talks about suffering in his body, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. In other words, listen, through what he's doing in me, you're recognizing the sufferings of Christ through what you're watching me do. And when you watch me, how I do it, you're going to understand the gospel fully. Now, here's my question for you and I. Over the last, uh, let me see, March, the I don't remember, right at the 1st of March, all this COVID stuff started. March the 15th. How are you doing in your activities, in your sufferings, and is it making Christ fully known? Or does everybody know how bad you, oh my goodness, I didn't get to go to the basketball game. This, they completely canceled our tournament that we normally go to. John, me and Gene and John and whoever those old geezers are that go down to Missouri to what? They don't even have that. I mean, is that the kind of stuff? I didn't get to go, you know, praise the Lord. Finally, they're going to have NFL football this Sunday. I can watch something. Uh, come on. I don't care that it's the Packers playing. All right. Listen, come on, church. Paul has given us a great example here of what we're supposed to be engaged in. Amen? Amen? He is, and, he, and the way that he's doing is intended to encourage them. Uh, he is suffering not only for their sake, but more broadly for the body of Christ. In, watch this. Also, look at what he said in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, earlier. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. I've been in prison for letting people know about Jesus. I want the Lord, while I'm here, to open a door for his word to be declared, verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. In the midst of difficulty... Making the gospel plain and clear. And that's what Paul says this, the purpose of his suffering is. And Tychicus is going to come tell him all about it. And how Paul's doing it. That's a great example. Say amen if you believe that. He says, uh, verse 9. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, anybody tell me anything about Onesimus? What do you know about him? He's a slave. He's not just a slave. He's a, he's a runaway slave. He's a bondservant, perhaps, or perhaps a, a slave that's been sold into slavery. We don't know exactly. Theologians kind of debate which he is. But he's run away from his master. And then he got saved under Paul's, and he's been discipled by Paul. Does anybody know the name of his master? Yeah, that's out of the book we talked about reading next. Philemon, the whole book of Philemon is Paul, primarily is Paul's, 
appeal to Philemon to release Onesimus completely because he's profitable to the work of the ministry. Just cancel the debt. So he's either a bondservant that was in great debt and he's, he's willingly put himself into that or he's somebody that was a captive against his will. Either way, Philemon is being appealed to by Paul to say, look, this guy, he loves Jesus. All right? We don't know if this was, here's what's interesting, we don't absolutely know which was first, Colossians or Philemon. We don't know which one was written first. So either um, Philemon has, he has done what Paul has asked, and that's why Onesimus is with him, uh, and is now being, being used to carry this message, uh, or send greetings, or uh, he's, he's still a runaway, and Philemon has perhaps gotten Paul's request, but hasn't taken action on it yet. We don't know which of those two is going on, but this is the same guy that's being written about in the book of Philemon. Um, Paul says, he is a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Uh, it is perhaps true that he's from there, from that area. There's a couple of just made up, my own made up thoughts. Um, no, no substance of this in the word. But if you put this into a practical application, a lot of people, when they're running from something, they're not very faithful and they're not very loving or lovable. Running from your past, running from what you used to be. Here's a guy who literally ran away and in the midst of that running came in contact with Paul and he's become faithful. Quit letting your past rob you of your faithfulness. Amen? Don't let fear be the thing that keeps you from being who God has really called you to be. Because, in, watch this, had he continued to be unfaithful, Paul would have never written the letter. It was his faithfulness and his character that ultimately set him free. Just an interesting side note. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, uh, we believe that Aristarchus is literally imprisoned with Paul. He's not just a spiritual bond servant. We believe that he has been a, been a companion of Paul, and he has been locked up like Paul has for preaching the gospel. Uh, not a whole lot there. It's this next guy that's mentioned that we know a little bit about. Paul says, uh, Aristarchus greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Where have we heard of him before? You ever heard Paul talk about him before? Anybody remember why Paul was locked up with Paul and Silas and not Paul and John Mark? Yeah, he went, he quit. Halfway into a missionary journey, he got homesick for mom and left him. And Paul did not appreciate it. So much so that, do you remember that Barnabas, who is his cousin, when another missionary journey comes up, Barnabas says, I want to take John Mark with us. And Paul said, if he's going, I'm not, well, I made that up, all right? But very heated uh, disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Do you, do you remember what the scripture called Barnabas over in the book of Acts? Before he goes to Saul, 
Remember what he's called? He's the one that presented Saul to the New Testament church. Remember what he was called? Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. You get the son of encouragement mad enough at you that he don't want to travel with you, you've been pretty hard-headed, haven't you? Amen? And that's who Paul was. They were so heated about it that Barnabas goes one direction and takes John Mark with him. And Paul goes another direction and takes Silas, a brand new young man on the scene with him. And that's when you see Paul and Silas in the prison. But something has happened. If you will remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, there's a verse there where Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says, hey, when you come, bring me a coat. It's cold. And be sure and bring John Mark with you because he is profitable to me. Go ahead. Yes. Remember who, okay, there's a, Carol brings up a really interesting point that would be a neat study to do. I don't know. I've never read this, but when you bring that up, uh, remember who, who Saul was. He was a very rising star. He, he was, remember, he was Pharisee of Pharisees, he says about himself. He was like the, he was on the career path to be the high priest. And he goes from that to being an outlaw for the cause of Christ and still incredibly well-educated, incredibly smart, multiple languages, used of God, powerfully anointed, uh, but pretty, pretty narrow uh, and not, not the most gracious guy. And later on, maybe, maybe age and watch this. Enough shipwrecks and enough, enough stonings and enough beatings and enough snake bites. And you go, you know, there's some things that matter and there's some things that don't. You see what I mean? Any of you find yourself growing more patient with age? A little more understanding of other people's frailty because you recognize, wait a minute. Yeah, that, boy, that... That reminds me of somebody. Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> Take 20 years off of me and I was the one. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed at, at things now that like my kids move into Florida. Um, Leanne and I were married October the 2nd of 1983. Uh, and October the 3rd, we got in a car headed for Tacoma, Washington. 1976 Ford Pinto with remember when they Jartran trailers used to be another company like U-Haul do y'all remember Jartran it was a, doesn't exist anymore we didn't have a hitch on the car so y'all remember those things that you could bolt on to a bumper that had a hitch had these big wing nut things you could turn and it would clamp down to your bumper and it would create a hitch a little four-cylinder 76 Ford Pinto pulling a completely full carpool we had enough space in the back seat for a little dog and that was it our little dog go I mean you know going up the Rockies going to you know come on baby come on 45 mm, you know we made it made it all the way out there I go what in the world what were we thinking so when our kids said that they were moving to Florida I was like at first I was like what are you and then I went wait a minute 
I married their mom, moved her to Tacoma for a year, came home just for a break, and then took her all the way to Europe for three years. Yeah, I bet her mom and dad loved me. Yeah, all right. So as you get older, things change. And I think that's what's happening to Paul. Mark, though, is now profitable to him. He's valuable, and he is now with Paul in Rome, we believe. And verse 11 says, and Jesus, who is called Justice. You didn't think Jesus was the only Jesus in the whole, whole Israel, right? It was a common name. So uh, does anybody know the Old Testament uh, version of Jesus? There is a, the, yeah, it's, it's Joshua. That's the, that's the Old Testament. Jesus is the sort of the New Testament Greek version of that. But Joshua was the, yeah. Uh, Yeshua. You probably heard that Hebrew word. Yeshua is Joshua in Hebrew. Jesus' name. Okay? And Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, this is what's interesting to me. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So, you've got uh, uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Three men of the circumcision. We would call those what? Jews. Three men among Paul's entourage who are from Jewish ancestry. What does that mean all the rest of them are? Gentiles. And they are. They're not Jewish. Most of the people working with Paul weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. Now, one of those that you're going to hear about in a moment, a couple of things before we get to that. Um, I think sometimes we have a, a little bit of a misunderstanding about how many Jewish people converted, converted instantly to Christianity. I, I don't know, I've never read anywhere an estimation of a percentage, but as it relates to the nation of Israel, it was a tiny, tiny group. A tiny group. The, the, the whole of the believers, the whole of the entourage of the believers, we think, most of them were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. 120 had, had followed Jesus, had converted to the way, to the teachings of Jesus, a fairly small. He appeared to over 400 after his resurrection, but that 120 isn't just the, that's the, that's the core of the whole New Testament church before the day of Pentecost. Now, it starts growing pretty fast right after that, though. 3,000 one day, 5,000, I mean, it, as Paul begins to preach under the anointing and P, or Peter begins to preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the church begins to grow rapidly and begins to spread, but it, it, it's a very small beginning. Jesus had lots of people come to him and lots of people heard, but there, there weren't a whole lot who gave their lives to the propagation of the gospel. Let's say it that way, okay? And, and only three with Paul. He goes on. Now, there's a, there's a, I, I want to kind of move through this because I want to get to this other person. Um, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, also a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Uh, we believe that Epaphras was from there as well, from, this, from the area of Colossae. And because of that, he carries with him a particular concern for their spiritual maturity. 
So much so that he is, I love this phrase, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Now, if you had to think about your prayers, do you ever struggle? I mean, were you, oh, Lord, you've got to, Lord, minister to them, draw them to you, make them, there's an intercessory feel to this. And it's almost like Paul is saying, listen, listen, Colossians, Epaphras, he's your guy, man. He is constantly praying for you, interceding on your behalf. And the particular thing that he's praying for you is that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's a pastor's heart right there. Lord, I don't want them to just know you. I want them to grow to maturity and I want them to have a faith that makes them assured of what God's will is for them. And that's what Epaphras is. It's interesting, and you probably don't remember this, but in chapter 1, verse 7, the very first person to present the gospel to the Colossians was Epaphras. These are his, these are his converts, the people in this church. He feels responsible for them. He, he carries, I think, the, the, the pastoral mantle for this group. Paul is the apostle. But Epaphras is the pastor. He's the one that is praying. He's with Paul. He sends them greetings, but he feels the pastoral burden for them. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. Mature their people and get them to the place where they are fully assured about the will of God in their life. He's the first one to present the gospel to them. He's vested in their spiritual development through his prayers. And as I said, he's got the pastor's burden for them. Verse 13, Paul says, For I bear him witness... That he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, in case you're wondering where Laodicea and Hierapolis comes in, these are all three of these towns are very close, within uh, probably 10 miles. If you drew a 10-mile circle, these three towns fit in it. And Epaphras, he carries this burden for this region. Listen, I've preached the gospel out there. These people are people that have accepted the Lord, and he is working hard in prayer and other things for them and in the people, and the people in Laodicea and the people in Hierapolis. He's working in apostolic fashion for those three groups of people. Now, here's where I wanted to get to. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to read verse 14. It says, remember, he's given this list of people. And Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. All right, everybody look up at me. Think about your answer. Don't shake your head either way and don't say anything. Just think about your answer. Was Luke one of Jesus' 12 disciples? What did I tell you? Reach over and smack him in the back of the head. I think a lot of people think he was, but he absolutely wasn't. Not only is Luke, and here's, here's another thing that I think, you better be quiet there, John. John instantly started shaking his head, Nikki, when I told him not to. I asked the question, he's like a, like a, like a, yeah, like, like one of them dogs on the dash of your car. Couldn't stop. All right, all right. But I think I think there's a couple of things about Luke that people don't. I don't think we put him in the right category. A lot of people think you know because Matthew, Mark. All right. Well, he must have been one of the disciples. He's used to write one of the gospels. No, he wasn't one of the twelve disciples. 
what else did he write? The book of Acts. If you take a class in a seminary now, you don't take a class on the book of Luke or on the book of Acts. You take a class called Luke-Acts. All right. You, and watch this. If you, if you want a really neat thing, go and read like the last two chapters of the book of Luke and then have your finger in the book of Acts. And the minute you hit the last word of the book of Luke, flip it over and start reading Acts 1. It is absolutely chapter 2. It's absolutely his... It, it, he, he just keeps writing, all right? They're, in, they're, they're absolutely written by the same guy. And it, it reads like he took a breath and then he started writing the book of Acts. It's absolutely a continuation. Luke-Acts is the name of the class. Not only, watch this, not only was he not one of the disciples, what else is he not? He's not Jewish. He's used of God. I don't think we have any problem that Paul writes epistles, but Paul is what? He's Jewish. But Luke is neither a disciple nor Jewish. How do we know that? Because Paul says, of the people that are with me, these three are of the circumcision, and Luke's not one of those three. He, he's absolutely a Gentile. I, I, I just want that to sink in because I don't think many people recognize that even in the recording of the Gospels, there's a non-Jewish guy who then writes, and if you, if you do the math... He writes half of the New Testament, verse-wise. And he's neither a disciple nor a Jew. Yay, team Gentile, all right? Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not in any way disparaging being Jewish. What I'm saying is that God's heart from the beginning was that Jesus and the gospel would be a light to the nations, to the whole world. So much so that here's this guy, well, there's a couple of them, Paul being one, who, what, who, who weren't, Paul is Jewish though, who weren't one of the 12 disciples. Uh, this, this one, Luke, not only wasn't one of the 12 disciples, he's not Jewish, he's a Gentile. And I think a lot of people have him in one of those two categories. Well, yeah, he's Jewish. He's a Jewish doctor who, who was with Jesus. No, he was neither Jewish nor with Jesus. He wasn't a... So, so who is he? Let me ask you this. Who is he? He's a physician. Under whose ministry was he saved? Is there a question, Dan, or do you want to give the answer? No, no, you're, you're not even here. You're a moderator. You just sit back there. You went to Bible college. You ought to get some of this stuff, all right? Who, who, was, the, who, was, the, who was the man who led Luke to the Lord? Take a guess. Paul. He was discipled by Paul. He was a disciple of Paul, anointed by God to write a gospel and to write the book of Acts. I don't know. I love that. I just want to make sure that you got him in the right slots in your who's who in the Bible place. Okay? Um, I love that. He is a physician. 
He's a doctor. Um, and Demas sends greetings as well. And that's all you get up for, Demas. That's it. <laughs> he said, tell you hi. That's all we know. All right. Uh, Luke is the author of Acts and the, and the Gospel of Luke. He's also Paul's traveling companion on his second and his third missionary journey. He's almost certainly with Paul in Rome where Paul is imprisoned and writing. And Luke and Epaphras and Demas are Gentiles. Verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. Now, a little bit of a what if. Uh, Nympha is a lady's name. Uh, some argue that Nymphus is what this should have been, and that's a man's name. Uh, I believe it's absolutely translated right. This was a lady, and she is in uh, either Colossa or Laodicea, and she has a house that she leads in her home. So not only can Gentiles be used to write Gospels, but women are pastor in churches in the New Testament. <gasps> All right? She's leading a church from her house. A woman leader of a church that met in her house. Verse 16. And when this letter has been read to you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Um, it is a... Um, it's a, These are epistles that were circulated around. Um... <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing at a text message that I got and uh, I'll read it to you in just a minute and all of you should call this individual and give him great grief for interrupting my anointed preaching here of the word Dave Wooden sent me a text he said listen Linda we want the book of Revelation <laughs> maybe you have been born for such a time as this too bad, wouldn't you? Don't always get what you want. He'll text me back now in a minute. He's watching. Um, the, these were circulative letters. They were epistles. They were written to be read um, by a messenger, and it wasn't uncommon for them to be read in more than one, more than one city, more than one house church. They were intended to be circulated and. And, and bring, bring teaching in more than one place. That's why he says, after you've read it, send it to the church of the Laodiceans. And also, I sent them a letter. All right? Make sure that you read that one. We don't have that one. All right? There were, there were letters that, that were sent and were circulated that we, we don't have a copy of them. We don't know what that was. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, this is interesting. This is like, and when you see that boy, tell him, oh, there you go. He's praying. He just sent me praying hands. Wooden is praying. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. If I really thought he was praying, I'd be impressed. <laughs> I love him. I really do. He says, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Um, we don't know exactly what Archippus's calling was. We don't know exactly what he was supposed to be doing. But Paul thinks it's significant enough that he sends word to the church. Uh, when you see him, tell him, uh, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That's a little bit of a, 
That's a little bit of a gauntlet thrown out there, isn't it? It's like me saying, uh, uh, you know, on Sunday morning, hey guys, uh, uh, Reverend John Bowling is at the firehouse today. He wasn't able to be here. When you see him, you tell him that we have a board meeting coming up. You see what I mean? Be sure when you see Randy, whole church, remind him that he's supposed to reach the senior adults of Madison County for that's sort of what Paul is doing. He is creating an accountability structure for this young man on whom the Lord has laid some sort of calling. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And then one last verse, and it's an interesting verse because it may not mean exactly what you think it does. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Uh, this doesn't mean that Paul's holding the pen. It's not uncommon for a secretary, a scribe to be used. Uh, this, this language was used to identify authorship, not, not, not I'm writing it down. Um, it's found in other places. I read this and I didn't take time to go, to, to go find these references. But it, one, uh, one uh, commentator said, look, you, you can find this where he, he mentions who's writing and he says, pinned by my hand. It was, it was a statement of uh, authorship. Uh, and so perhaps he's written this down, but most people believe that that would be very unusual in that world for him to actually write the letters down instead of him, him saying them and somebody else writing it down. Either way, Paul was the one that was responsible for these thoughts. Then he says this, remember my chains. Don't forget where I'm at. Don't forget what I'm doing. Don't forget how I'm doing it. And then he says, grace be with you. Uh, grace be with you. Um, I was going to see. Let me see if I can find, I think I remember the reference. this verse because it goes along well with what what he says there yep first corinthians fifteen ten. paul writing again and i love this um when he said grace be with you paul says this but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace towards me was not in vain I'm going to read the second half of that verse, but look up here for a minute. There are times when people set grace in opposition to works. And in a purely theological, how we are saved vacuum, that's absolutely appropriate. We are not saved by works, we are saved by grace. Everybody say amen. amen. But listen to what Paul says. Let me read the whole verse now. This is Paul. He says, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You hear the combination? I am what I am by the grace of God. 
But his grace towards me wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. His grace caused me to work. Not so that I'd be saved, but because I remembered what had been done for me and reaching out to others and and, and, and being who Christ had called me to be, that was a natural expression. His grace upon me wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the rest of them. His grace was the motivation that caused me to work. So don't ever let anybody tell you that grace doesn't motivate you to do stuff for God. Because it does. And it motivates you to be things for God. Nikki? About... Um, about works with uh, grace without works is or faith without works is dead. Well, first of all, James is talking about faith, not grace. Even though they're first cousins, <laughs> they're not exactly the same. Um, first of all, faith is sometimes difficult for people to to uh, uh, define. Uh, people want to substitute the word belief for faith. In, 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 in all of my studies and all of the things that I've, I've covered, I've developed what for me is a really good working definition that differentiates between belief and faith. Um, I've said it to you many times, but it really is a constraint for me. The, the, the thing is, though, is that someday I'm going to stand before the Lord and I think I'm going to be accountable for my definition. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, he's going to hold me accountable in my life for what I understood I don't know if that makes sense to you, but maybe it does. The difference in faith and belief is that, to me, belief becomes faith only when it alters my action and my behavior. Belief is in here. And and I don't just like the geography. Faith is here. That, That doesn't mean anything to people. When belief in a thing rises to the level that it constrains me in any way it's faith until it constrains you until it pushes you or stops you or causes you to give or to not give or to until belief changes how you are how you live it's not faith when it does though it is faith, all right? So that's what faith is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a list of, now watch this. Where does faith come from? What's the only reliable source of those beliefs that you then act upon? What's the only reliable? Faith comes by and hearing. I'm going to take the word by out because we, we don't really use, it's an old, it's a King James verse and we don't use by that way anymore. All right, and it's completely the the thought is completely uh, understood. It's not a it's not a special kind of hearing. All right, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. So put them together. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. All right, all right. You can't you can't have faith without His word. If you're going to neglect God's word, you're not going to be a person of faith. Because you, you'll have other beliefs that you will act upon. The beliefs that are an ind- indicator of faith are 
the scriptures that you've now incorporated into your life and they've erupted in faith that causes you to act and be certain things. Now, so James says, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And he's right. He's, what James is really contrasting, Nikki, is belief and faith. You're saying you believe something, but it doesn't cause you to do anything. That you just believe. And you're calling that faith. And James is saying, that's not faith. See, me and James, we're like that, all right? In our theological understanding. He's saying faith is only really present when it manifests itself in works. Not works that lead to salvation. What Paul said, I worked harder than anybody. Why? Because I was such a recipient of his grace. Now, so in that way, now, now watch this. So how do you appropriate how do you, now everybody stay with me. This is like dominoes falling over. How do you appropriate God's grace? Through faith. That once you have faith in Christ Jesus, he gives you, the, the scripture says, the gift of faith and bestows his grace upon you. What does that grace do? Eradicates your sin. Eradicates the penalty. You didn't do anything to deserve it. It was solely through faith. But that faith manifests itself through works, right, that appropriated grace. So, you with me? So works really don't have anything to do with grace. Works have to do with faith. Got it? Belief turns into faith. Works come out of that faith. And that faith gets you grace that you don't have anything to do with. That's God's gift. All right? Does that make sense? Hope it does. It does for me. Any other questions? It's been good tonight. I've enjoyed the last two weeks. It's been, it's been fun talking about these things. I hope you're benefiting from them. You must be. You keep showing up. So those of you that are online, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Um, God's word is alive. It's intended to mold and shape our hearts. If you're not being pressed by it, uh, you're not... Uh, you're not encountering it. You're not, you're not engaging with it. Father, let your word be alive in it, in us. Let it change us and mold us and form us into the people that you want us to be. Let us be filled with faith uh, and let that faith result in great grace from you to us and from us to others. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.